On December 10, a violent tornado tore through my home state of Kentucky. It stayed on the ground for nearly three hours and well over 150 miles. It was the ninth longest ground stay of a tornado in the history of the United States. It claimed 58 lives and wreaked incalculable destruction, including on places from my childhood. And despite heroic cleanup efforts in the intervening six weeks since then, parts of the city of Mayfield look like no progress has been made whatsoever in the cleanup. My good friend, Pastor Kyle Reeder, who lives near the afflicted area, told me this this morning. He said they are working feverishly, but the amount of work to be done is overwhelming. It will take months, if not years, to complete. In my judgment, that is a picture of the condition of the outwardly professing church of Jesus Christ today. Over the past several decades, the spiritual equivalent of an F5 tornado has blown through the church and it has left behind incalculable carnage on the church. The charismatic movement has diluted millions and undermined the principle of sola scriptura. The prosperity gospel has taught people to be selfish and to set their minds on earthly things. The pernicious influence of moralistic therapeutic deism has conditioned men and women throughout the church to think that God simply wants to help them in their problems and for all of us to be nice with each other and to simply get along as the fulfillment of the existence of deity. You can go further. Since the 1980s, the Willow Creek and Rick Warren seeker-sensitive model of ministry has conditioned others in the church to expect the local church to provide a soothing place of entertainment and inspirational messages with a healthy dose of light-hearted laughter mixed in to the services, not to mention the need for age-appropriate programs specific to each individual's area of interest. Do I need to go on? More recently, the disastrous MLK 50 conference from the Gospel Coalition in 2018 blew open the door to race baiting and the so-called social justice gospel in the church. Last year, the Southern Baptist Convention elected a known plagiarist to be its president and then the leadership circled the wagons around him as many called for his resignation but none of those coming from the leadership of Southern Baptist seminaries. Then, to add to all of that, there is the steady stream of men 
who disqualify themselves from ministry on moral grounds, including those that would be far more sympathetic to our theology than anyone that I have mentioned so far. To go further, in the meantime, 1.25 billion, with a B, Roman Catholics live in darkness, fear, and satanic blindness and consider themselves to be Christians. And all of that is without considering the increased hostility that we are staring down the barrel of the gun from governments that do not stay in their proper sphere. You look at that, you try to take that in mentally, and you see nothing but the massive widespread rubble of it all and ask where do you even begin to address that? Where do you even begin? This is a widespread spiritual catastrophe that no one church, no one conference, no one pastor, no one book can begin to repair. And it certainly cannot be salvaged by so-called Christian leaders acting like Fox News commentators on social media or carnal men who mix the Bible with their love for fine cigars and scotch. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're looking at acres and acres of spiritual carnage of widespread destruction, and where do we even begin to start? What's the first rock that we pick up in order to undo some of the damage of the resultant rubble that is in front of us? Well, I hope to have some words of encouragement and instruction for you out of the first four verses of the pastoral epistle to Titus, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And if time does not fail me, I hope to have some words of practical encouragement and exhortation to pastors and lay people alike at the end of my message. What are we to do? Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We find in this text precisely why Jesus Christ appointed Paul to be an apostle. And by extension, this text tells us what the church is to do today. 
we find our marching orders, as it were, directly from the Word of God. Now, this is not an exhaustive text about the nature and purpose of the church. I only have 45 minutes, after all. But it is critically instructive. Christ did not appoint Paul to promote the material prosperity of the elect. He did not call Paul to produce political change. He did not call Paul to be popular. It echoes in my mind often what Paul says in 2 Timothy, I believe it's 4.14, where he said, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with him after decades of ministry. He went to his appointment with death, having been often abandoned by those that he instructed. Christ did not call Paul to produce political change. He did not call Paul to entertain non-Christians with motivational messages. He did something far different, far more important, far more significant, and far more applicable to our purposes in the church today. Jesus Christ called Paul to advance a spiritual work in which Jesus Christ builds his church. Matthew 16, verse 18. What must we do in response to the spiritual tornado that has devastated the landscape around us as far as the eye can see? What must the church do we find three clear answers in this text. And I'll, I'll just give you three quick points as we go along. First of all, we lead men to Christ. We lead men to Christ. And that means that we're not simply calling them to, to lean on Jesus to help them with their personal problems. It means, it means far more than simply asking Christ to be a friend. Paul received his apostleship so that those whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world would come out of the world, would come out of sin and selfishness in order to be converted to faith in Christ and live to his glory henceforth and forevermore. You see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, that he's a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth. Faith, we need to be explicit about and define it. Faith is a, a personal, believing response to Christ by those who repent when they hear the gospel. I like the definition of faith that you can find in some of the confessions. By faith, one receives Christ and rests in him. We receive Christ for all that he is in his Godhead and in his humanity. We receive Christ for the sake of the work that he did on the cross to redeem sinners, and by his, by his perfect life, laid down in a sacrificial way as a means of a blood atonement for sinners before the Holy Father. 
faith turns from self, turns from sin in order to receive Christ for all that he is and to rest in him. To no longer seek to earn merit with God by our own actions, but to recognize our utter depravity, our utter sinfulness, our utter separation from God, and to look outside of ourselves and to rest in Christ as the one alone who supplies the righteousness we need to be reconciled to a holy God. You can see this clearly in Christ's words that he spoke to Paul at his conversion. If you'll turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26 with me. Acts chapter 26. You see Paul describing in the broader story of his conversion what Christ commissioned him to teach and preach. And in verse 15, Paul, after he had been seen the vision of the Lord, he said in verse 15, he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the purpose of it. Here's the content of the message. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul, you must go out to the world and you must teach them and instruct them so that they turn from sin, turn from Satan to the living God, that they might be set apart for the glory of God, the purposes of God through faith in me. Critical aspect of Paul's apostleship was to lead men to Christ through the instruction of the Word of God. And on his three missionary journeys recorded for us in the book of Acts, in the, in the 13 letters that are ascribed to him in the New Testament canon, we see that Paul was faithful to the mission that was given to him. And a big part of that was to take the gospel out. Now, by extension, as we inherit that apostolic example, that is our goal also. That's the purpose of, of the Great Commission at the end of, of Matthew 28, to go into all of the nations, to make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. Some, as we do that, will hear and believe in Christ and be rescued from their sins by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. Some will hear and believe in Christ and be delivered from the, their bondage to sin, their bondage to Satan, their bondage to self, and be gloriously delivered from all of that, brought into the kingdom of God to serve Christ in this life 
and then live to his glory forever in heaven around his glorious throne. Their faith, the faith that God wreaks or works in the heart of those who believe, shows that God had chosen them, had chosen us beforehand out of that mass of humanity in order to be the recipients of his saving grace. That's one of the critical key purposes of the church. And beloved, I just want to tell you, when men are pursuing an utterly political agenda, when men are wrapped up in in race-based approach to scripture, and all of the entertainment and other, other maladies that I alluded to in, the, in my introduction, that this gets covered up. You lose sight of this preeminent purpose in the midst of it. And you sacrifice the sacred calling of God on the church and on us individually. You sacrifice the sacred calling of God for this eternally significant matter simply in order to water the tares among the people of God. And so confusion, doubt, and unbelief in the name of advancing the work of Christ. We have to understand that Christ has called us to something else, individually and as his people, as a church. Secondly, we, we, we call men to Christ. Secondly, we teach biblical truth. We teach biblical truth. And there's a sense in which I stand here and I feel like I'm speaking to you ABCs, the ABCs of, of ministry. But hear me out on all that I have to say here and go back to the book of Titus with me. where Paul says in verse 1, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and, second point, the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Paul was appointed not only for evangelistic purposes, but he was appointed to present every man complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 1. And this shows us and reminds us profoundly that biblical instruction is central to the church's mission. We must teach the word of God or we have forfeited our right to exist. We do not exist to be the social club or the social center of our communities. We exist to teach God's word. Other people can run the Kiwanis. Other people can run the chamber of commerce. The church and the church alone can teach the word of God and has been appointed for that purpose. You and I, pastors and elders and lay people, we must never lose sight of the central purpose for why God has raised us up. We have been appointed to proclaim his word and that biblical instruction is central to the church's mission. You can see that as you read on in Titus as he talks about the qualifications of an elder. 
Look at verse 9 there. You can see how by, by the repeated references in this very brief epistle, how important this teaching role is. In verse 9, he says that elders must be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, as he addresses Titus directly. He says, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 15, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. It's the idea of command. Let no one disregard you. Churches must teach believers the full counsel of God. And pastors cannot take a poll and simply determine the course of their pulpit by what they believe their audience wants or more perniciously, what they think will give them a broader number of people in their audience, whether inside the building or on social media. That is a, that is a gross act of prostitution, far worse than anything that takes place on Sepulveda Boulevard in San Fernando Valley in California. I'll say more about this teaching of the full counsel of God in just a few moments. But we must, we must, beloved, we must understand how vitally central this is. And you know, you pick up a Bible and you realize this is a pretty thick book. There's 66 books in the English Bible that are required to be mastered. There's the whole matter of, of, of doctrine and systematic theology that need to be mastered to some degree or another. There's a matter of, of, of teaching and instructing on practical matters of the philosophy of church and the philosophy of ministry. And this, this, is, this is a massive book that we have been given to teach people in. And listen, I, wanna, I, want, to, I want to make a, what for some will be a rather obscure point and reference, but this is very, very vital to understand keeping in mind the totality of what I was saying at the beginning of my message and my introduction about the manifold errors in doctrine and practice that have invaded the church. We, mu we must understand something. We must understand something very, very critical so that we gear up and approach the task properly. The history of Christian doctrine tells us that the people of God learn doctrine very slowly. They learn it over the course of decades and even centuries. If you look at how the church sorted out the doctrines of, of the doctrine of God, the doctrines of the persons of Christ, the doctrine of, of soteriology and the matters that were raised in the Reformation, these things, these things took place over decades and, and often centuries. And so we are fools if we think that we can do a brief, a brief series in a month and bring everything back into order in our church or in the minds of, of, of the people of God. 
Beloved, the point that I'm making here, based on the history of doctrine, and by the way, let me just give you a couple of books if you ever want to pursue this. The ones that I have enjoyed recently are uh, the, the two-volume work on the history of Christian doctrine by William Shedd, and then there's a, a smaller, more compact, very, uh, very intense uh, work by Louis Burkhoff, also titled The History of Christian Doctrines. You can read these things and find them out for yourselves. This takes time. There is no quick fix or shortcut. And the problem, the challenge that we face in ministry is that people are impatient with sustained biblical instruction. Serious Bible teaching is not the way to quickly grow your church. But beloved, it is the only way that we can address the rubble that has been left behind by those that have gone before us in the prior decades. People are impatient for many reasons. Some of them are not even born again, but they wander into the halls of the church. Some are worldly-minded, and you just think of what Jesus described about the seeds that were sold, how some seeds sprouted up quickly but had no root. Some seed fell on the hardened path. There are lots and lots of work to be done in order to work these things into the hearts of people. And even to say it more sympathetically, and I, and I look, uh, understand that I regard you as friends and I, that I'm on your side in everything that I say here, especially in what I am about to say. I say this to help you, not to chastise you. But, many, but I think that almost every professing Christian does not realize how deeply impoverished they are and how much they need to grow in Christ and in the understanding of doctrine. We, we, we get saved, we get baptized, and then we settle into a comfortable life and don't realize how deeply impoverished we are. Turn over to the, the writings of Peter just after Hebrews and James in your Bible. For those uh, reading on your iPad or your phone, you can scroll down as you see fit. I'm a hard copy man. I'm a book man. Although I give you liberty to be a technological person if you want to be. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Actually, let's read verse 1 because it echoes what Tom Askell said in the first session. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I thank God. I, you know, the fact that you're here shows that that's exactly what you want. You want to grow, and I affirm you in that. I just want you to see that this is a long-term process that we're talking about. At the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, Verses 17 and 18. 
You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. We have inherited the legacy of many, many, many unprincipled men. And so what are we to do in response? Verse 18, but we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me pause here for a pastoral word of encouragement and exhortation to you. Where, where, does, this, where does this start? How do you do that? Where, where should you focus your attention? Well, obviously, we all need our own personal intake of the Word of God on a consistent basis. But let me go beyond that and to encourage you in this way. Consistent attendance to the primary teaching of your local church is essential to your growth. Think about it this way with me. Students fail calculus if they miss 50% of their classes. I know this from personal experience. (laughs) In the first year of my undergraduate days at Indiana University. The absences create far too many gaps in their knowledge in order to be able to to respond and to apply the formulas to the problem at hand. You can't master calculus if you are inconsistent and unfaithful in your studies. Athletes do not win championships if they skip training or approach it in a haphazard manner. It takes diligent day-by-day training if they want to lift the trophy over their head in victory. Let's consider another realm. Employees are not promoted who are unreliable at work. And on and on you go. Consistent diligence is critical for those who want to succeed long-term in the task that is given to them. And by the same principle, Christians do not grow in grace if they are inconsistent in gathering together with the saints to hear the word of God. I'll have more to say about this in just a few moments. But beloved, you know, this this haphazard approach to attendance is lethal to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of truth. It is lethal to the life of a local church, and it's lethal to your own spiritual benefit. How are we ever going to grow in the mastery of this great revealed word from God if we act like it's a matter of indifference and personal choice as to whether we attend to the teaching of it or not? This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And look, I am not binding your conscience to go to every single program that your church may may have on its smorgasbord of opportunities. What I'm pleading with from you is to be faithful to the primary public teaching of the Word of God. 
At our church, at Truth Community Church, we, we, a lot of people don't understand us, and that's all right. We have two services and no programs so that our people are free to focus on the teaching of the Word of God, to raise their families, and to not be diluted from a lot of activity and a lot of programs that might seem good on the start or seem good at the surface, but beloved, they have this effect. They drain away the time and attention of people from giving their attention to the serious study and independent reading of the Word of God. I, I, I believe the churches need to come to grips with what they expect from their people. That's for leadership to decide. For those of you that are privately involved and, and people that are just faithful members of your church, I exhort you to be faithful in the public teaching of the Word of God when that takes place and to build your life around that. And like I say, I'll have more to say about that in a moment. So what do we do? We call men to Christ. We teach biblical truth. Thirdly, as we think about the church triumphant, go back to Titus again. Honestly, I don't, I don't know how, as you're turning there, I don't know how pastors think that their people are going to be serious readers if they have them busy four or five days a week in, in the, on top of their jobs. How, how are you ever going to have somebody that's a serious reader of serious books that have stood the test of time? That's for a pastor's conference sometime, I guess. Talk about not getting invited back. I don't, I don't care. I really don't. What else do we do in the midst of this kind of spiritual rebel? We keep perspective and we don't lose sight of what the Lord has appointed for us. Thirdly, we proclaim our future hope. We proclaim our future hope. A God who cannot lie has eternal blessings in store for us. Look at verse two there. Paul has said, I'm, I'm doing this for the faith of those chosen of God, the knowledge of the truth. In verse two, in the hope, the certain expectancy, in other words, of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. We proclaim to true Christians the reality of the church triumphant. We proclaim to them the outcome of our labors on earth, the outcome of our faith and dependence on Christ is eternal blessing in heaven. Salvation goes beyond what happens to us in this life, it's so, it's so infinitely beyond God helping us through our daily problems, God helping us through our health and spiritual challenges here in this life. It's so much more than that. Beloved, we're here for a short window of 70 or 80 years, and for some of us, most of that's in the rearview mirror. If, if, if we were only saved for this life, if we only followed Christ for the sake of this life, the, the scriptures say that we are of all men most to be pitied. 
We can't lose sight of the triumphant future that lies ahead of us. Paul alludes to that in that second verse, the hope of eternal life, and he comes back to the theme again in chapter 2, verse 13. Actually, we'll start at verse 12 here, where he says that in verse 11, I do this all the time, I'll go to a verse and then I just keep backing up. I teach in reverse, That's, I've got a problem. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, so that by being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I'm already excited and looking forward to speaking on this theme more tomorrow afternoon. As a church, the, the, the purpose of the church, Christ's purpose for the church is to lead men to Christ, to teach biblical truth, and to proclaim eternal hope. That is the spiritual work that has been instructed to the church, has been given to the church, I mean, and to the church alone. We cannot take our eyes off the ball and follow these other catastrophic philosophies that I alluded to at the start. And beloved, they are catastrophic. They are catastrophic. And the weakness of the church is visible. The walls have been broken down and the enemy has entered in. And it's up to you and me, like in the days of Nehemiah, to start to pick up bricks one by one and to put them into place, even if it seems like it's a long and unfruitful process to do it. There's nothing else for us to do. And so with that in mind, let me just ask, this, ask and answer this question. What do we do? You know, practically speaking, if you're going to say things like this, you better have some kind of next step solution in mind. What do we do, first as pastors and then as lay people? Well, let me just say this, and... This is just gonna be a rapid fire machine gun thing. As pastors, we must focus on the transcendent themes of scripture and act like we take seriously our responsibility to be the pillar of truth. I am presupposing here the five solas of the Reformation that we teach, that we teach the principle of the Bible alone, that we teach grace alone by uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That, I'm, I'm presupposing that in what I am about to say. We also need to be able and, and to take the time to teach the very principle of truth, the very principle of absolute truth. This is necessary to refute the postmodern spirit of our age that says truth is private and relative. 
We need to help people understand the biblical basis for the authority of Scripture and the authority of God and the authority of Christ. We have, to, we have to start someplace and establish that there is absolute truth that cannot be disregarded. Secondly, in light of the sexual chaos that is all around us, we have to teach long and often about biblical creation and about man as being created in the image of God in order to counter the breakdown in sexual ethics and gender identity. Look, all of, that stuff, all of that stuff is just a symptom of prior philosophical presuppositions that I define truth for myself and truth is determined by how I feel inside rather than by an objective standard outside of me. No one seems to understand that in the world today. Where are we ever going to begin to rescue the principle of absolute truth if pastors don't step up and assert it and teach it in a way that people can understand. And thirdly, we have to teach the universal nature of God's moral law so that people understand that there is an objective, absolute standard that does not change by which they will one day be judged by a holy God. We do so in the hope that the Spirit of God would use the conviction of sin in order to lead them to Christ. Now, beloved, absent another great awakening wrought by the Holy Spirit that sweeps our land in a, a marvelous act of revival, I pray for that. I hope that you do too. But since revival is at the hands of a sovereign God, we have to undertake to do the long-term work. And this will take a widespread effort of biblical pastors doing the hard work, being content to watch people leave the church if necessary in order to uphold the principle of church and to honor our duty to teach biblical truth before the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, I realize, I just turned 60 this year, I realize as I say these things, that those of us that engage it may not see the fruit of our labors in our lifetimes. But we must start. We must be doing this. We simply cannot, we simply cannot look at acres and acres of mounds of spiritual carnage and simply turn and walk away and do that which would be most prosperous for our careers and our conferences and our publication ministries. We can't walk away from it. Now what about lay people that are not in ministry and responsible for the teaching of the word of God as their vocation? Let me just say a few words of encouragement to you. First of all, do not get your theology from Twitter feeds of non-pastors. I am completely serious. Secondly, you should start reading on your own transcendent books on Christian theology by established pastors. You can start with the book by John MacArthur. It's a condensed version of a longer work. The book by John MacArthur called Essential Christian Doctrine. Or I also highly recommend the original version by James Montgomery Boyce titled Foundations of the Christian Faith. If 
you would start and read just five to 10 pages a day of those books, you could finish both books in three to six months. It's a start. And it will help you see biblical truth in proportionate relationship to other truths as well, rather than simply reading about your favorite hobby horse, especially if that hobby horse is the matter of eschatology. I'm serious. I'm, gl I'm, glad, I'm glad you're enjoying it, but I'm serious. Secondly, and I'm out of time here, almost, Structure your life around, as I said earlier, structure your life around the primary teaching of your local church. Beloved, listen, for the serious Christian, for, for any Christian, for any Christian, the days of Christian families fitting church around the weekend sports schedule of their kids, those days are over. There is too much to be done, and consistency demands that we reorder our priorities according to the Word of God and we shape our lives around that rather than just fitting in church around the cracks because our kid is hitting 300 on the travel team. <laughs> thirdly, thirdly, support your pastor. Support your pastor. Pray for him encourage him, and be there when he teaches. And listen, if he comes under attack, especially within the, the body of the local church, you do this. You go up to your pastor, you put your arm around him, and you say, I've got this. And then you go and take care of the problem, you address the dissenting troublemaker, and you spare your pastor the heartache and distraction of having to do that. That you can do that. Well, and there's so much more, but time has failed me. We have acres of spiritual rubble to clean up. The good news is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That even though the task is humanly possible, we understand that with God all things are possible. Luke chapter 18, verse 27. Christ will help us. Christ will continue the work after you and I are gone. He will build his church and he will be triumphant. And we just want the privilege and the ability and the strength to be faithful in the little window of time that he has given to us and trust that God will raise up others after us to continue the work. Gracious Father, we pray that you would bring genuine, deep repentance to those who have harmed your church. We pray that you would give grace and strength to us as we undertake the task. Grant us wisdom to know and to do our part. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.